Welcome to episode two of IQS Tech Factory talk series. In this episode, we talk to Simon van Nerven, former head of innovation at KLM, Welling, and currently innovation catalyst at Chanel. Hello everyone and thank you for joining us again on a new episode of IQS Tech Factory talk series. My name is Oriol Pascual and I'm the Managing Director of IQS Tech Factory, a European hub for industrial innovation and entrepreneurship set up in Barcelona. At IQS Tech Factory, we help build the next generation of industrial companies. How do we do this? Well, we basically run an acceleration program where we help hardware-based startups go from a prototype to a first uh, uh, industrialized series, to a first manufacturer series. We also organize an annual event, an annual gathering around industrial innovation and entrepreneurship. And finally, we manage, we run a community of heads of innovation and large industrial companies that are looking for innovation in startups. So why do we do this? Um, why these talk series and what is the goal? Well, we believe, um, well, one of our missions is uh, to promote the importance of industrial innovation and entrepreneurship. We believe that uh, it pays off to invest in the development of new industrial ventures. And one way to show that is to host conversations with the people making it happen. So that's why we organize um, a series of conversations with uh, industry leaders, innovation and, and entrepreneurship leaders uh, for the upcoming weeks. Every other week, we're going to have a conversation with scientists, entrepreneurs, uh, corporations, heads of innovation, so we can hear their voices. We hope that you enjoy the conversation. Before we start the conversation with uh, Simone van Nerven, I would like to thank once again to the IQS Tech Factory and Barter teams uh, for making this possible. Actually, there is a, a group of people behind this uh, making things happen, and so everything runs, runs uh, smoothly. So thank you very much. And um, also, I would like to remind you that you can send questions either through the chat box, if it happens that you are watching this conversation in our website, you can send the questions there and we are gonna pick up some of the questions to answer at the end. Or you can use social media, Twitter and LinkedIn with the hashtag TalkSeriousIQSTF to send your questions. But today, um, I would like to welcome to Simone van Nerven. We have with us Simone van Nerven. Simone, is a, she has a background as a mathematician. She's the founder of uh, Ribilla. Ribilla is a company from where she supports large companies in order to set up their innovation units and their innovation strategies. And in fact, she's been responsible and she's been setting up innovation units in places like KLM, Welling, and currently she's at Chanel as uh, an innovation catalyst. Maybe she can tell us later on uh, what an innovation catalyst means. Finally, also, we are very proud to have uh, Simona as a, as a mentor in our acceleration program. So if it happens that you are a startup uh, that uh, ends up selected with our program, she is one of our mentors that can help you and guide you in the process of developing your innovative solution. So Simona, thank you for uh, joining us today. Well, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, so well, I, I didn't say that, but uh, you are located in Amsterdam right now. Yep, happily locked down over here, yeah. <laughs> exactly, because um, prior to that, 10 weeks ago, maybe some 12 weeks ago, you were in Barcelona before everything started and then moved back to Amsterdam. Yeah, actually, I uh, my company is based in Amsterdam. So I lived both in Barcelona and Amsterdam. Uh, I lived in Barcelona because I was the head of innovation for Welling. Uh, but uh, I traveled a lot. Uh, and two days before the lockdown, I uh, had to rush back to Amsterdam uh, well, and to get a lockdown over here in Holland. Uh, well, it's yeah. it's better, actually, because it's been more relaxed than, than in Spain. So definitely better. Hey, yeah. but I would like to start the state away. And, and we know each other for a while, but I never asked you, I, I never asked you about your, your background. Something that yeah. always surprised me is that you're a mathematician uh, yeah. of education. And I know that your first 
uh, positions wherein companies like uh, DAF and like the PostNL, so the National uh, Postal Service in the Netherlands, as a mathematician, uh, developing mathematical models in order to solve uh, complex uh, issues. Yeah. How does a mathematician, uh, very geeky, I will say, in, in yeah. her field, do the jump into innovation? So what was the trigger? What, what made you go from one place to another? Well, actually, I'm not sure if it's a jump or maybe it's a very gradual uh, transformation. And actually, I'm not sure if it's a transformation. Um, I'm reflecting back on on my, my my foundation mathematics. Actually, I I was very much in doubt whether to study psychology or mathematics. So I'm not only and my guilty pleasure is data and and, and the, ma the mathematical side, but I'm also very good with people, and I think that is a very interesting combination. And that becomes more and more important uh, these days uh, with the focus on customer centricity. Um, when, when, you, when you learn or when you study mathematics, the first thing is you, uh, you get over the fear of complex things uh, because you have to solve very complex stuff. Uh, and uh, I'm not afraid anymore to take up complex uh, things. Secondly, what is also, I think, fascinating uh, is there's always a solution. So if your first try, yeah, if you try to solve something and it's not working, you have to drop that and then try something new. So I think in those days, I learned to fall in love with a problem and not a solution. And that is something that comes in extremely handy when you innovate, because when you innovate, you have to be able to let go one of your prototypes or your concepts if it's just not working. Uh, and then thirdly, I think mathematicians are also very, uh, artisty. Uh, I just saw a TED talk uh, about this and, and mathematics is all about recognizing patterns and when you innovate you have to be very creative I think and you have to have a sense of the real problems and patterns and show uh, I think trends and trends give leads for where you need to improve or where there are opportunities. So I think the background is very good for, for, uh, for innovation. I never thought of it in that way. And, and now that you say it, it makes so much sense. And, and, and you are listing a list of attributes that any uh, uh, aspiring innovator, if you want, should, should, should have. So it's about uh, losing the fear to complexity yeah. uh, and, and also manage, managing complexity, uh, but also this, uh, it, I wouldn't say iteration, but this trial and error, trying yeah. different, uh, different things and the... Um, it's not about mathematicians, but the empathy part, the fact of understanding people and being empathetic with uh, people. Yeah, and, and you learn to become very uh, persistent. So, and I think for every everyone who runs a startup or has a, a big challenge ahead, that is also a trait that comes in very handy uh, because you, you bump into walls and uh, don't give up. Just So I think that is also what I've learned back in those days. And, Would well, you say... Sorry, sorry. No, yeah, and adding to that because you asked how come you how come from solving complex problems with mathematical models to innovation. If I look at innovation, it's not only about the the big uh, stuff, uh, disruptive stuff. Uh, it's also about having your feet on the ground, right? I always say innovation for me is having your head in the clouds and keeping your feet on the ground at the same time. So back in those days, I was much more focused on Horizon 1 on to solve current problems, but with new creative ways. And I used technology that was out there back then, well, Excel sheets and that kind of stuff. Um, by now, that has transformed into AI and machine learning. So it's not, it's not such a strange uh, path uh, that I uh, did, actually, would you say that if you would have taken any other of, of the two options that you had there of your studies, would you end up uh, being uh, an innovator with psychology or with uh, the Dutch language? I, I, that is interesting. I don't know for sure. Um, w during my career, it helped me a lot th uh, that I have been a mathematician or I am a mathematician. Also, and maybe that sounds a little bit strange, but I'm, I'm a woman. I've worked in, for instance, at KLM in engineering and maintenance, which is uh, five or 6,000 uh, male 
uh, and then uh, for the for, I, I ran a department, three hundred guys, and it was hard to to lead a department like that. But because of my beta background, they were sort of like, oh, maybe maybe she says something that makes sense after all. Uh, and I think that it helped me also to see how can you drive big, t- large teams uh, to every day to to get better and to improve. Um, so I'm not sure. It's a difficult question. I, I think I'm I'm very broadly. Uh, I said I I like to explore a lot. I'm very curious. So if yeah. I would not have studied mathematics, probably I would have jumped into some courses or stuff like that, like I did now on the other side. So I did some courses in psychology and, and journalism and that kind of stuff. So, yeah. So would you say these, um, there are these different uh, profiles of people? So one, one thing that we hear in, in, in the world of innovation is that the T-shape kind of... Yeah. Uh, profile of person it's it's ideal that means that it's someone that it has a um wide understanding on understanding in in several issues maybe not very deep but but can link things because he understands different issues and then in one specific area uh a deeply a deeply uh so will you say that this this applies then to you yeah i think uh if people ask me what is your job uh when you when you do innovation I always say that it's my my task to bring new perspectives. So to look at the situation maybe in a different perspective. So when you have T-shaped people, uh, they are able to at least look at situations from different perspectives or understand if someone else brings a new perspective because they have at least the feeling for it. And what I think is uh, stopping innovation is when people stick into their silos or into their own world and when they're not open to other perspectives. So I think this is one of the benefits of T-shaped people. They at least are aware that that the world is larger than their own specialism. And can can you can you nurture that? Can you can you nurture that someone becomes uh, T-shaped? Uh, kind of person so that it gets this this wide perspective uh yes i I think you can stimulate uh maybe there are some people out there who will never get it that's possible um but i think you can can slim it it requires curiosity and curiosity is also fed by that you tap into different kind of sources of inspiration so you can help people to to provide uh sources of inspiration or to give them a little bit of freedom to explore uh when i uh, so nowadays it's okay for people to work at home but i always said to my team hey, i don't care where you are uh just uh, i trust that you uh that you do your job and that you deliver and uh, um, and that you are self-motivated so uh, if you want to stay in bed until 10 because you are not a morning person and you work until late I, that's fine Sometimes I saw people struggle at the office when they they just well you get stuck you know the feeling right you have to do mm-hmm. something and you so I said well go walk on the beach or go I don't know go downtown and because I think um, on those moments it doesn't pay pay off to to get to keep getting stuck in where you are and, right. and just by walking or exploring you you might come up to some new ideas so I think it's also about letting go a little bit. And being okay with that. Um, totally. Yeah. So. You were talking about uh, user centricity uh, yeah. before, and yeah. and and well, uh, we we know a little bit each other, and actually, I've been, of course, uh, following uh, you, a big proponent of this user center uh, approach to innovation. And when I hear that, I have to say that it shocks me, and it shocks me. Um, not 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 about the concept of user centricity, but but the fact that, well, if it's not user centric innovation, how how can it be? And every time I hear you talking about user centered kind of uh, innovation, I always wonder, like, well, if not user centered, then what? So what are the alternatives? So can you maybe elaborate on that? Not so much about explaining us what is user centered innovation, which I think uh, probably most of the audience uh, have a clear idea of heard, or maybe you can do a little intro, but what other sorts of approaches there are to innovation and, and then why user center? Yeah, yeah. So I, I do have a problem with the word user 
because if okay. you look, no, no, it's, I, I can explain because uh, it, th there are um, there are uh, the only ones who talk about uh, uh, to talk about customers as users are tech companies and drug dealers. So I prefer to use the word people. There are, okay. So I, I prefer to use the word people-centric. And for me, people-centricity is not only about that you uh, uh, innovate for people, but also with people. So I think there's also a big difference. So obviously, you have to get in uh, be in touch with uh, uh, the persons who are using your service or going to use. Um, so for me, that is super important. Um, other perspectives are, and I see this happen a lot in companies, is uh, a tech, really tech focused. So they innovate uh, because there is new technology out there, just for the sake of new technology. And then building the, the coolest new solutions that there is no problem to match for a company. So one of the things I noticed when I was, uh, and, and I still have that, a lot of people uh, send messages to me on LinkedIn and then they want to sell their service. Um, startups who have, have a solution and, and they sell that. And then I, I always think about what, but what problem is this going to solve? Because a lot of solutions are being pushed because it's possible from technology, but it's not right. really connected to what I need as a company right now. So... That's why I push a lot for the people centricity uh, because I see in a lot of companies, they are, they are now uh, starting units, which is called tech. So they start to, to, to transform their IT departments towards tech. And then they had a crazy innovation team and they're going to put the crazy innovation team also in the tech unit. And I'm all, always afraid that the people side is being forgotten that. So that is my uh, perspective a little bit like. Well, it's, it's, it's a good point because I like that you're bringing um, already how innovation is happening in companies or in large companies where you, where you have experience and there are these different approaches. Are there these uh, people-centric approach uh, together with people and for people and, or this uh, technical approach, which will be like for the sake of technology, just because we have VR glasses now, let's find an application yeah. for VR in our in our business. Um, that brings me uh, to 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 try to understand a little bit better how innovation units work. And and I mean that's a universe that that you know very well. You've been starting from scratch and you have quite some experience. And maybe a little reflection first is that I always see innovation units in large industrial companies at least kind of there is a dichotomy. You know, in one hand they are supposed to. Um, they are there to uh, question the status quo. They are there to uh, provide uh, radical or innovative or, or very different proposals and, and solutions. You know, they are somehow the hope for the future of the company. But then on the other hand, in many, many, many cases, you can feel the frustration because um, the rest of the organization doesn't have this way of thinking. And, and, Inside the bubble of the innovation units, lots of incredible things can happen. It can be very inspiring. It can be very exciting. But then to translate that to the day-to-day -day becomes becomes more tricky. And, and I see, um, I can feel the frustration sometimes. But then the question maybe is like, how can innovation units become relevant or make themselves relevant in companies, so what what can so probably this this is something that is being watched um, uh, by quite some of your peers, I will say at least at least nationally in 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 Spain. Uh, so what would be your recommendation on how what can be done from within the innovation unit to become to make themselves relevant? Yeah, yeah. First of all, I also think there is no one size fits all approach to innovation. Um, so I think every company or every environment requires its own approach, uh, a sort of personalized approach. Um, I can share you how I, how I uh, in two years in Voiling, how I approached innovation there. Um, we worked, uh, so the team uh, worked in three horizons and the first horizon is the, was the here and the now where we had our feet on, feet on the ground. So what happens in to in the next two, three, four years. And then horizon two is what happens in, in five years from now. 
and horizon three is more the crazy stuff, right? What happens in 10 years? Uh, are, are, where we have a head in the clouds, are we still an airline in 10 years from now? Um, so what, what I did is I had service designers in my team and service designers go out there. So they went to the airport and they did a lot of observations and they talked to customers and colleagues. And then they mapped the current state uh, in service blueprint. So the actual processes, both the customer process and the operational process, and they also mapped all the bottlenecks in there. And this is, I daily told them, fall in love with the problem, not the solution. Um, and because we had a very clear understanding of all the problems, we could also try to figure out where we could find good solutions. And this is, I think, more down-to-earth innovation. But the reason why we also did that is here we created the landing spots with the business. So we were solving real problems for the business and that is important to gain trust uh, and because we we started to build our trust we could also say hey but now let's look at the future so for instance for horizon 2 what we did is we created a vision how will it look like when you go to the airport in in five years from now so in 2025 and we created an animation out of that so we did a lot of research on customer behavior on new technologies and so we created a vision for that, an animation, so we could share it to, with our colleagues. So we think that this is sort of where the future is heading to. And then it became more tangible. And then we could, all, we could also say, and this is why we are experimenting with facial recognition for boarding, because in the future, this will be a normality. And th that's why we experiment now. So we could start to explain to people uh, the reason for so some of the experiments we did. And well, and we, we made our management team or the, the board uncomfortable with questions like, hey, are we still an airline in 10 years from now? What about Google? And what about virtual meetings? It's actually a nice anecdote. But when I started at Welling, I, I suggested to, uh, to do some uh, investment in online conferencing or something like that. They thought I was crazy. But <laughs> look at us now. Eh? So, um, and, and I think it's all about connecting the three horizons. And if you are a team only working on horizon one, you're just a problem solving team. If you're a team who's only working on horizon two or three, you're the crazy team that everybody is like, yeah, sure, but now we have to go back to work. Yeah, nice, fun, but... So I think by combining them, it makes, it makes more sense. Uh, that was my, uh, my approach at Boiling. Uh, yeah. And, and and about this horizon one, I like it because to me it sounds kind of a quick wins. So what can you do at the beginning to gain that trust? Is there some sort of approach of methodology to, to look at these quick wins? So uh, being in different companies as you've been, um, pro I'm sure that you know that, A, the first area you need to look is this area because there is always uh, room for improvement in this area. So is there any recommendation of where to look for quick wins? Yeah, so for, if you look, for, uh, especially on the Horizon 1 topics, uh, most of the time uh, I work together with multidisciplinary teams. So it's not only the innovation team, but work a lot with the business. Um, and then you just have to listen for one or two or three days and to listen to their ir irritators. Um, and then you can, you can start by just removing those kind of small irritations. And and the other day I was talking to someone and she was complaining about, yeah, and then people are receiving a PDF and then they have to type it into Excel. And I, and I said, have you ever heard of RPA? Uh, no. And I was like, this is a quick win to use new technology um, to solve a, a, a small problem, but a, but a high uh, problem with high irritation uh, for employees. And then you win the hearts of your colleagues and then they, they see innovation is not... Uh, it's not, um, how do you say that? Yeah. It, it's, it's okay. Actually, it's quite fun to innovate, right? People are a bit, a bit afraid of innovation. So for me, it's always uh, listening a lot. Um, uh, there's, so working at Chanel, is a, it's a very different environment than an airline, especially a local airline. So, uh, so I don't have one specific topic, uh, but it's all about thinking in processes and, and think how, how, how you can do that smart or smarter. Yeah. I'm curious about Chanel and I, and I have some questions about that, but in fact, um, something that I'm also curious is about 
how can you promote an innovation culture within the organization beyond the innovation units? And and yeah. and, and I'm a big fan of of one of your um, uh, activities, which is this pop up. Yeah. Uh, kind of, so so if you can explain that, and also in yeah. general, how can we um, uh, spread innovation culture or or, in, or innovative thinking in, in the rest of the organization? Yeah. Yeah. So so what I experience is that normally in in organizations, the board are quite enthusiastic. So and the people, uh, the, the the workforce. They're enthusiastic, but it's the management layers in between that is sometimes uh, the most challenging uh, challenging part. So what I did in Vueling, for instance, a concept to engage uh, with all our colleagues was we hacked the canteen every now and then in the morning from 9 till 11. Uh, and my team showcased uh, our work. So And di different kind of things. So sometimes we showed blueprints that we created and that we say we went to the airport and we deep dived into this process. And so people were like, hey, this is, is this also innovation? And I said, yeah, we need to identify our problems. So, and then people started to, to, to add on that. Oh, but I don't see this problem. So, so that creates buy-in. Uh, I had a guy in my team, uh, Chema, who was very, very good in building concepts in just two or three days. So we took those concepts to our colleagues and we just let them play with it. So it was our first way to receive feedback. Uh, and sometimes we received very, uh, very good feedback. So we, so we knew we were onto something. And sometimes our colleagues were like, no, it's not going to work. Or maybe uh, you could twist and tweak it. And so it, it also improved our prototypes. It was also very good to show to the company, hey, there is a, a creative innovation team. And it was also very nice for team building for, for our team. Because in the, the first time I really had to push the team to do it, they really didn't like it. But at the end they were like, yeah, can we do another one? And so it created also a lot of buzz. So uh, th that is, I think, uh, it's an easy concept. We, we never asked permission, so we just did it. We just hacked. And, and, and people really liked also the buzz that was going on. And, so I can highly recommend this to anyone uh, to do that. The first time I saw that in one of your LinkedIn posts, I was like, that's so awesome. That's so awesome because I saw you basically had one of these uh, roll-ups and kind of basic uh, yeah. uh, table, and then you had some mock-ups there. And I thought, that's really, really cool idea. Yeah. And the canteen is where everyone is going. So everyone is going to pass in front and, and a number of them, they're going to show some interest. So they're going to, at least they're going to ask what the hell is this, you know? Exactly, exactly. And, and that triggers uh, curiosity. And it's also win, winning souls one by one by one, right? So creating your ambassadors. And, and I always said, you have to be where the people are. People won't come to you because they're busy. And well, they, had, they, they, want, they were getting coffee in the morning anyway. Uh, and then uh, we had a nice talk and then now people started to ask about it. Why, Simone, when is the next uh, pop-up demo? <laughs> so it's a really nice concept. And we started to do this also at events. When we were still able to do events, we, we also brought our concepts to events where we had actually the opportunity to test with customers, right? right. So, and, it was, uh, and it's nice on an event to not only show a roll-up, hey, we are an innovation team, but hey, this is what we create. Can you help us out here? Yeah. Well, this this align we recommend to so our startups they are all hardware based startups they have physical products uh, yeah. uh, some of them in B two C but mostly in B two B but when it's B two C there is always a point and they always come to us that they already have a functional prototype yeah so but when there is in B two C we always recommend them set up a pop up store. Um, yeah. Ask someone if it's okay for one day to have a little desk there with a roll-up and have the prototype on top of the desk and people will come to you and you can yeah. start validating assumptions, you know, because you've been spending so long building a product. Uh, yeah. You're going to hear firsthand from the people seeing your product, your future users. So the concept of a pop-up, and I have to say it's been inspired on your pop-up. When <laughs> oh, that's great to hear. This, what, this kind of approach. It is also very good So for the developers, for instance, to get first response from customers because normally they are at, at a desk developing uh, and coding. And then they were in touch with, with 
real customers and sometimes they were like yeah but of course they understand my prototype and then the customer said i don't understand it was very good also to get more that customer centricity in the in the developers hey if if i wanted so again about uh, the setting up innovation units something that comes to my mind is if today i'm asked in my company you are going to be the head of innovation, you have resources, set up an innovation unit. I will say, what are the minimum requirements that an innovation unit can have? And I'm thinking of two directions. One is that I know in Welling you were running quite a large team, 14 people. Um, um, Well, let's say that not every organization will have the resources to to start with such a team. So from a profile perspective, what are the two, three kind of profiles you need in order to, to, to start running. Yeah. And then the, related to that, it's a very different question, will be what kind of ground rules should you set with the mothership, with the, with the mother company, you know, in order yeah. to make sure that there is an understanding between the innovation unit and uh, the, the organization, the corporation, so that can grow and can further develop. Yeah. So the first first one is, uh, I think the three main skill sets you need in a team are customer centricity. So someone really needs to understand the customer perspective. So service designers or, uh, or skills like that. The second one is obviously development and tech skills so that you can build and prototype uh, quickly. Uh, in my team in, in Voiling, I had... Uh, someone who was able to build a concept in one or two days with a lot of different technologies. And on the side, I also had a development team. Uh, If you, in the beginning, don't have the resources for your own development team, you can obviously also outsource that, right? So so you can, uh, on specific tasks, uh, outsource that. Um, And then the third skill set is you need to have business sense in your team. Because if you don't understand the business you are in or the management perspective, uh, then it's pretty hard to get to create the landing spots that that you need uh, with with the model uh, ship. So I think those three, and that's why I think in the beginning, especially in the beginning, it's extremely important to have T-shaped people, right? Because uh, in my team, for instance, in uh, in Barcelona, I had a guy Chavi uh, who was an experienced manager. He was also running his own startup, uh, he, so he worked part time in my team. of the time he was in my team, 50% of the time he was running his own startup. And for me, very interesting because he understood what it takes to build something out of nothing, no resources. But he also was very experienced in managerial. So how do you make sure your innovations land in the the organization? So T-shaped people is very welcome, especially in the beginning. Um, I would also say that maybe in the beginning it's it's worth to to hire maybe a little bit more expensive people because they quality is uh, important. Uh, I think it's always important, but especially in the beginning. And then how how, how do you make sure that? your innovation team is not being killed in, in one month, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> Thanks for rephrasing. <laughs> yeah, no, well, that, well, that, and especially in these times, right? It's exciting times, but uh, it's also scary times for innovation teams. Um, now, one of the things is I always say, give me the biggest problem of the company. I'm going to solve it. Because if you have the biggest problem, there is also a need that your team is working on relevant stuff. Um, and, I, and I also... Uh, challenged uh, organizations often say hey, if you have this problem for so long then obviously somehow we're not have not been able to solve it so maybe we need some different kind of thinking to solve this and i think an innovation team is would should be extremely good in that so uh so that that's one i think you should also have backup from really high level so for instance in Vueling, i reported to the cfo which was important because he could cover me uh, when things got rocky. Um, and you you have to explain that sometimes that, well, you have to explain that we fall in love with problems and not solutions. That means that sometimes we create a solution, it's not going to work, and we throw it away. And that it will take some time, but the, the experimental way of working is, uh, I think, in the end faster, but it looks slower for uh, for a company. Uh, in the beginning, so uh, that would be my my 
yeah, main recommendations. We can talk about this for three hours, but... Uh, well, no, actually, there are many things coming yeah. to, to, to my mind, but I will say this culture of experimentation, I, I also feel we are very much in, in Tech Factory, we, we do have this culture of experimentation, but is this something that generally you feel that you have to educate the organization, that it's okay to, to throw things away uh, or to redo things away, that it's okay to fail because... Uh, that especially in established welling, maybe by the time that you attended welling, that still had this kind of a startup, a scale up kind of vibe, and 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 in a growth process. But KLM, like like a, a century old company, you know. Um, yeah. I, I always say that that uh, organizations that uh, they have many years, they're they are great because they have a strong identity, uh, but they also have a, a very heavy uh, backpack, you know, yeah. and. Yeah. And it's very difficult to, to change things. So so yeah. how do you how do you explain that it's okay to fail and that it's okay to test? And if yeah. things don't go well, just uh, do some yeah. tweaks and then try yeah. it again. Yeah. So so uh, aviation industry is a very risk averse industry, right? So uh, which is good because we don't want to experiment that planes come down uh, easily. Mm. Uh, but this has this risk aversity is within every cell of the of the company um of the industry i think i saw that at willing and i saw that at klm and other airlines as well so that makes it even harder to explain why experimenting is important but if you scope it so if you say hey we 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 take this area and within that area we can experiment uh then it's uh, it's easier to show so for instance in at klm they have uh, at Schiphol Airport a, a couple of gates, and they call it the experimental gate. They call it the X gates, and they have an understanding with Schiphol Airport, uh, KLM and Schiphol, that they can play around, so they can test, which is actually quite difficult normally where at airports because everything is so fixed. And I think this is a very interesting uh, example of how you can stimulate a experimental environment in. Um, in such industries, I try to get my uh, uh, to get our experimental <laughs> gates here in Barcelona with Welling. In but Prat, it was pretty yeah. hard with I, I. It was hard with Ayena. Um, but I also think it's interesting to see is that I'm Dutch, right? So uh, there is a, quite a difference between the Dutch and the Spanish culture. And um, here in Holland, it's already pretty difficult to make mistakes and to ask help i think in spain it's even more difficult i think people are uh, less open to admit that there isn't uh, that, uh, that you make a mistake and well with experimenting it come comes that you have to admit okay i fucked up and i need help and it and so that is also something to to realize uh, that you create an environment that it's safe to make these kind of mistakes and it's okay and we're there we are there to help as long as you learn from it it's okay so exactly. uh, yeah but it's hard work it's not uh, not something and i think we already in in uh, i i don't have children myself but i see the children of my friends when they go to school and oh, they get really frustrated when they made a mistake which is i don't i think it's good you have to be happy that you're mm. able to make mistakes so i think a lot of changes need to happen in society even to become more uh, experimental and, and innovation uh, minded that's that's true uh, before we close the chapter uh, yeah. about the innovation units let's talk uh, briefly about about chanel i was very surprised um to see that you got connected uh, to Chanel as an innovation catalyst, which I'm also curious to understand uh, exactly what uh, innovation catalyst means. But uh, my thinking was more in the line of, well, Chanel is a luxury brand. Yep. And, and I could imagine, the first question was, why do they need to innovate? I mean, luxury brands like Chanel, they made it. I mean, uh, um, they basically, they, they are selling intangible value, they are selling reputation, they are selling history, you know. Yeah. Um, why innovation yeah. <laughs> in such a context, you know? So now that I have you here, uh, yeah, can you yeah. give me your five cents about that? Yeah, but there's a lot. So actually, this time is extremely uh, interesting because you see now more than ever why a company like Chanel also needs innovation. 
they are fo only focused on the offline experience. And they now start to understand that we are now living in a highly online environment, that there is no business. So all the boutiques were closed. I think they're now slowly opening, but all the boutiques were closed. They had no way to, uh, to provide... Uh, their fashion because uh, talking about fashion now to to provide fashion somehow to to get it to customers so so but basically you're telling me chanel didn't have online uh, retail as per now uh, for fragrance and beauty yes so perfumes okay. and stuff like that but not the clothing not the fashion. not fashion accessories or no. clothing no oh, wow. no so so that and then also uh two cents is we are going towards a world of digital fashion right, where people have avatars And they want to clothe their own avatars. Um, and I know Gucci is already experiencing with, uh, experimenting with that, that you can mm. buy your Gucci garment online. So, so mm. you can afford Gucci, maybe not in real life, but yes, in virtual life. Mm. There is a lot to, uh, to, to innovate in that field. And also, I think, in the whole supply chain, uh, look at Amazon, how they use robotics and stuff like that. That is also applicable for, for Chanel. So for me, the first, the first thing I, I said to Chanel when, uh, when I started there is that I, in Barcelona at Boiling, we were testing RFID to, to track uh, luggage. And I said, well, maybe we can use this technology also to track fashion in the boutique. So to see, to, to keep the stock and everything. So that it, you can leverage technology and solutions, even if the industries are completely different. And I think that's also the reason why they like to work with me because I'm such an outsider. So I always wear sneakers and jeans and I'm not a typical uh, Chanel uh, person. Uh, but maybe that's why I bring in fresh ideas. So, uh, yeah. That's, that's important. Well, looking forward to see what's coming out of, 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 this, of this collaboration. Before going to the questions from the audience, because we are receiving some, some questions and some they're touching on the, on the subjects, of course, that, that, you've, yeah. been, that you've been commenting. I would like to open up a little bit about the impact of the of the current pandemic, uh, especially in innovation units, because um, I don't have a clear view of what's going on. Uh, and I wonder uh, what is your perspective? I have the feeling that the current pandemic basically uh, is disrupting lots of businesses, lots, if not everything. Yeah. Um, that means also that it's a time for, I wouldn't say rebuilding, but about... Um, creating new things uh, it's it's some sort of tabula rasa i think for people like you and and us at tech factory that we like to build from zero to one it's heaven let's yeah. say like okay now it's <laughs> we are yeah. we're talking about these uh, suitcase and backpacks with uh, with heavy weights well suddenly they are gone yeah uh, so yeah. so so there are lots of opportunities there but then um i wonder how is the pandemic uh or according to your perspective, how is it affecting innovation units? So are they becoming really more relevant because they are seen as the, the, the savers of the, mm -hmm. of the business because they can really help uh, uh, redesign the future of the company quickly because it needs to yeah. be done in, in, in a time yeah. or because of the crisis, because we can already see the, the impacts of the crisis. Um, some of them, they are suffering and actually they, they shut down. Well, yeah. no, we don't need that. We need to focus yeah. on the core activity. So yeah. can you give us a little bit your perspective on that? Yeah, and I see, I see ex exactly these two trends going on. So you have companies where the innovation teams or the digital transformation teams are, uh, are being shut down or freeze. Um, well, my two cents about that is uh, I, I, for a long time, I said there are companies who are doing innovation because they think it's the only way to stay relevant. And there are companies who, who are doing innovation because everybody is doing innovation and it's cool and we need it for marketing purposes. So and now the going get stuff, I think uh, it shows which companies are really serious about innovation and which ones are not. And then the ones who were not there, I think there will some will wake up. So I think now more than ever, people start to realize that maybe without innovation, they 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 won't come up with uh, quick uh, solutions for the problems they they have. So I so I maybe it's just also positive thinking, but I hope that the companies who are freezing their teams there are need to unfreeze them. Rather quicker than, uh, rather sooner than later, 
Um, I also think that this is a message to innovation teams because innovation teams also need to be need to realize that uh, they have to work on things that are relevant. So not nice to have a let's fly a drone around in the office, but work on things that actually matter for the company. So it's a two-way direction. So I think it's a big wake-up call for both sides. Um, yeah, and, and I, I hope that what you see right now is that the companies who were further ahead in their digital transformation are doing better right now. So I hope that gives also the proof for the companies who are lacking behind that this is the way forward. So that is a little bit how I look at this uh, crisis right now. Right. And and then my last question, and then we're going to jump because I see quite interesting stuff here coming and I'm very curious also. But um, another thing that we see, another impact uh, of of the current pandemic is is the finally uh, the tipping point. There has been a, 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 sh a shift in power, I would say, from a geopolitical perspective. So we've been talking for the last 20 years about the rise of Asia, the rise of China, yeah. you know, the dragon yeah. is rising up, is, uh, et cetera, et cetera, like something that is coming, but it's never there. And I have the feeling it just happened. So we just, we just turned the corner. It's just the, the, the tipping point, you know, and, and, um, and what we see is that, um, well, uh, China, uh, it's becoming a superpower. It is a superpower, you know, and, and, and in a way it's very, it's very well equipped, you know, yeah. for, for the times that are coming. We're all going to follow, uh, the lead, the lead of China. So, and, and we, this idea of China being a place that there is not innovation, that it's being copied, this is from the past. This is, we all know, if you are a bit into, into the know, this is over. This yeah. is not the case anymore. Yeah. Um, I know you're a big fan of, of how things are moving in China. Yeah. So, so what is it that you see? What, what are your perspectives about this new reality and, and the role of China as a source for innovation, I would say? Yeah. Yeah, so first of all, I think uh, to put things in, into perspective, China has always been the world leader, but they lost it like 100 years ago. And they're now just taking back their place. So it's not. Uh, so I think uh, that is the first thing to to think about of of China. There are things in China that are completely different than here, uh, and we. I think here in the West we are too arrogant about uh, and judgmental about what happens uh, over there. So again, I think the first thing we need to do is to to just understand what is happening there. And how things are happening before we 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 say we label it good yeah, good or bad. Um, they have a governmental system where they don't change presidents every three or four years. Where you don't have that every three or four years, someone has to prove that his predecessor was wrong, and lose a lot of time with that. Um, so they can set a long-term vision uh, where they want to go, and they follow it, and then they put all resources into that. So I think in 2015, they said, hey, actually, I think the wake-up call was when uh, Google uh, DeepMind won. Um, the, uh, Go, AlphaGo. AlphaGo Alpha won the, <laughs> the, Go, the Go game. Yeah, the, the Go game, yeah. And that was a wake-up call for China. It said, if, if AI is possible to do this, then we need to be, we need to be in this field. And ever, ever since that moment, they start investing a lot in AI. They understand that AI, then you need a lot of data because otherwise there is no good AI. So mm -hmm. that's why they push for 5G. That's why they push for supercomputing. That's why they push for IoT, robotics. So it's very logical. If you start to understand how they innovate and how they um, put all the resources into that, and then they apply this to solve their biggest problems, like the, 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 the pollution in the air and the healthcare system and everything. It's, it's fascinating to see. And, and what is for me the most, when I was traveling there a year ago, the most uh, impactful thing for me was the, the incredible speed of how they do things. And we saw that with this crisis, right? They build a hospital in just five or six days. They use drones because there was no lighting. They use drones to light the, 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 the place so they could build 24 hours. So, so stuff like that. It's crazy. We need to. And, and I think the best strategy for Europe. Europe is in a perfect position 
because the states and China are fighting and they want to have one friend and the friend is called Europe. So we are in a position to choose what, what we want. Uh, I think it's now the time to build relationships with China and to partner up instead of fight it, uh, work together. Yeah. These, these are very interesting perspectives, the fact of being Euro, the role of Europe, eh? one of our obsessions or something that we, we, we are very interested in acoustic factories to the role of Europe again as, as, a, as a place, as an industrial place and meaning industrial also from an innovation perspective, you know. Yeah. Um, and then we also see that, we see the fact that the China has lots of um, uh, um, elements that make it interesting, but one that is unbeatable is speed, as you said. And we see with our startups, the classic example is that um, a startup that it's setting up, we're talking with Benjamin Job in our last conversation, you know, why uh, Hacks, which is, which is an accelerator for hardware startups, have an office in Shenzhen, because seven in the evening, you design a PC board, eight in the morning, the PC board is on your desk. Yeah. And, and that doesn't happen here. You know, our startups, they design a PC board today, two months later, you know, they're going to have it. Or maybe they stop operations because they are waiting for an engine to come from I don't know where, you know, and they cannot continue. So, yeah. so that's something that we need to, to look also. How do we align our uh, value chains? Um, if we want to be more competitive, it's going to be very difficult to, to, to beat that. Maybe we will never beat that. But at least if we want to keep the pace, we need to align our value chain so we can, uh, we can be faster in, yeah. in doing things. From conceptualization to uh, first version and then iterate, iterate, yeah. iterate, be way faster. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I went to that accelerator, that Hux accelerator in Shenzhen. I was. All right. That was, uh, it's built on 1.5 square square kilometers warehouses where you can buy like the nuts and the balls and everything. Uh, that was fascinating. It's paradise. Yeah, yeah, it is <laughs> For people yeah. like us, it's paradise. Yeah. Hey, so I would like to jump now um, to some questions. We'll just select a few of the questions, but there is one that I found very interesting because somehow it's a million dollar question for innovation units and that has to do with measuring performance. Uh, somehow uh, we think that, that innovation and measuring performance sometimes are a bit tricky. So actually um, Arnau is asking, how do you measure an innovation unit performance? Are there any examples of KPIs? Yeah. Yeah, it depends also on how you position an innovation unit, right? Because I think there are companies who are positioning the innovation unit as a uh, crazy team out there, right? The, the horizon two, three, and they come up with completely new business models. Then you measure something differently than if you are focused more on the here and the now. So I think uh, it's hard to, to come up with a fixed set of, um, uh, of KPIs. One of the things I, I measured is uh, very basically how much concepts did we make? So for instance, last year we, we made 60 concepts at Boiling because it also showed, okay, how quickly are we just delivering? Uh, and then we start to measure how much did we uh, test with customers or colleagues? Uh, how much people did attend our pop-up demo? It's, uh, but it's also to how much spread that we have. Uh, I also pushed very much on when we uh, rolled out our innovations, how how much people are using it. So stupid thing, but we, we created WhatsApp stickers. And so I was always asking, okay, how many people have clicked on those WhatsApps that have downloaded those WhatsApp stickers? So, so measure the actual use um, of your innovations. Um, um, also, if you solve real problems that save money, try to figure out how much money you have saved. I always try as an innovation unit to, in the beginning to be cost neutral so that you fix some problems that, that saves money because then nobody can complain about your cost center. No, you're mm. at least you're like not costing anything. Maybe you're not. So that, that is also a strategy to, uh, well, to at least uh, in the beginning um, get over the, the hurdles in the beginning. Um, but it's, there's for me there is no one set of KPIs. Um, yeah. Right. That, that it also occurs to me you're talking about creating sixty concepts per year. Um, the way you work typically doesn't mean do you have some um, 
Do you work under certain framework? I mean, uh, there is some organizations that they do sprints every two weeks. So you, you know that there is a cycle that continues. Is, the, is some sort of framework like that that, that you use? Yeah, so, so uh, um, if you are able to build the right skill sets in your team, I, for instance, in Voiling, I had Chema who was able to build like a concept in one, two or three days. Uh, I let him go. I, in the beginning, he was doing something else, but then I uh, discovered his talent and I said, stop what you were doing and you're going you're gonna to do this for the rest of, uh, of the time. So I let him go. And he was a very creative, yeah, very creative developer. So he came up with stuff himself and I didn't want to, to structure that too much because if then I would have killed, I think, the creativity. Then we tested and the, one, the, the, concepts that be, the concepts that he developed were not very pretty. So there were no designers involved yet. So what happened is that we tested first with colleagues or sometimes with customers. And if they liked the concept, then we brought it to the next phase. And then I used the development team uh, that we had in Valencia uh, and together with designers to create the first MVP uh, which was much prettier um, and there we worked in sprints and sometimes it was easy they could build it in, uh, in, uh, in three or four weeks and sometimes it was a little bit more complex and then it took uh, longer and then we had to hand over to, to the business which I think was maybe one of the biggest challenges always but uh, but that is a little bit, I think, the three phases when you innovate. And, and I had quite a lot of fights with my team because uh, the, the concept sometimes look, didn't look really nice. But I said, hey, it's just one or two days of work. So if we're not going to proceed with it, we just lost one or two development days. And if you already let a team of developers work on a concept, then you lose maybe four weeks. Uh, so, yeah. Mm. I will, I will, um, I will bring in two more questions, and and one maybe I'll rephrase a little bit. Um, is is uh, what will be um, one of these concepts that you develop? What will be the one they are most proud of? Or is there anything out there that it's been implemented that you're proud that it's visible that we can recognize? Uh, you mean at Welling right now? At Welling, yeah. Yeah. No. So what happened is, I think we launched several uh, interesting things, like uh, the WhatsApp, uh, a chatbot in WhatsApp, and uh, voice. Uh, but I, I also think that they turned it off uh, after we tested it uh, several uh, several weeks, and I don't know actually why they turned it off. It was also because of a cost reduction, uh, I think. Uh, well, I think it's it was a very good way to connect and engage with your customers which would lead to indirectly uh, new customers right uh yeah so uh unfortunately i i, I cannot say hey this exactly this thing is what we uh, launched and it's still uh, alive uh, right yeah no, that's to, yeah. you have to dig in that <laughs> yeah yeah because some things are still running obviously right and and i think one of the the, the major accomplishment is also that we did a lot to get more of that innovative um, DNA in the company um, and to get uh, the mo motivation of people uh, higher. And I think that is something people not always uh, value that much, but I think it's, it's invaluable if you have motivated uh, people around. So. That's All right. And, and, and before we close down, uh, I find this very interesting. Someone is asking, do you think that tradition and innovation can live together and how? And, and I like this, this a lot because somehow mentally those are in opposite uh, places. Yeah, no. So, so if you look at a brand uh, like KLM or Chanel, they are both very old and they have a very interesting history. Uh, so I think that is a very, uh, and, and they both have a very pioneering history. So if you look at Chanel, she, she went to New York uh, by herself as a women, women entrepreneur and she created a whole brand. Uh, KLM, they were very pi uh, pioneers. So I think you can really tap into that more traditional pioneer thing and bring it to, to the here and the now. So I think uh, it helps to create that, that, how do you say that, that strong brand uh, position. Um, and for me, it doesn't necessarily conflict with innovation at all. Uh, it can empower each other, I think. 
Right. I think it's a great way to, to finish the conversation. Actually, I would like to thank you so much for, for this insightful conversation. Thanks, Simona, for being with us today. Yeah. And I see if people have questions, you can connect with me on LinkedIn, right? So I can uh, answer questions on LinkedIn uh, if people want. We, we can do that. We're going to find a way. This is also something that um, we are trying to find a way to, to keep the, answering these questions because we have uh, quite few and, and you also see them here. But again, thank you very much for your time and such insightful conversation. I think that lots of learnings came out of that and lots of uh, great quotes also. Uh, so thank you very much. And, and with that, actually, um, I uh, would like to close, I would like to close the, the session. Um, once again, uh, I would like to thank to the IQS Tech Factory and Barter team uh, for uh, making this possible. And we look forward to catch up with you uh, in two weeks' time. So thank you very much and have a good day.